Coming up this week on S4C, a little bit of sport in action. Saturday, the 31st of March, Easter weekend. We've got Bangor against TNS in the Welsh Premier League. 5pm on your screens with Dylan Ebenezer and the crew with a 5.15 kickoff. TNS League champions last week. So it's all done and dusted for them. But Bangor really pushing for that second spot. That'll give them the all-important European position. And who knows, it could give a little brief insight into the battle that should be closer next season. I'm pretty sure Bangor will strengthen and they'll be hoping to close that gap. So five o'clock with a 5.15 kickoff. And then Easter Monday, no football, but there is a bit of rugby action. We've got Cardiff playing against RGC. Rugby, Gogledd, Cymru. So that should be a good game. 2nd of April on Monday. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Longman's Football World Faithful. I have to start by apologising. Sincere apologies for the long break. It has been too long. A few things had crept up. I mean, I couldn't quite give enough time to the podcast, meaning I decided to have a little break and then give myself enough time. I didn't want it to be scatty. I didn't want one being released every three, four weeks. So I thought, collect a, a good variety of guests, meaning... Hopefully for this next chunk of time, I can release one every week. And what a what a great way to start. An absolute legend in footballing terms. Big, bad John Hartson. Um, somebody I've been lucky enough to work with recently. Back home, working on Scorio, working on, on S4C, covering Wales games. And uh, lucky for me, he, he was kind enough to give me his time. Uh, we, we went to the hotel and pub that he was staying at, the Black Boy in Carnarvon bit busy very popular place downstairs so we went up to his room a bit of peace and quiet uh, there was a slight disturbance about halfway through where the lady came to knock on the door explaining that uh, our table was ready for food big john must have been starving got up so quick knocked the recording device off the table switched it off but all was not lost it was saved and we got straight back to it and, and he's got an unbelievable story to tell well documented uh, but he, he is a legend. Uh, started off at Luton, went to Arsenal, Wimbledon, West Ham, uh, Coventry, before going north of the border. Could have signed for Rangers, but I think he'd be very open in admitting that uh, things turned out okay. Knee trouble meant he signed for Celtic, and things didn't go too badly up there. Uh, probably his most successful period as a player. Back down then, played for Norwich, played for West Brom. He's got 51 caps for his country with 14 goals. That record speaks for itself. He he was my coach for a little bit in the international setup. Uh, didn't stay too long, decided it wasn't quite for him at that time. And obviously, good and bad. He, he is so open, such an open talker. He, he'll talk about the good times, scoring goals for his for various clubs. He'll talk about the bad times as well. Talks openly about Tony Adams coming out to the to the squad about his his alcohol problems, and and who knows maybe that was a, an inspiration for John later in his life when he had his own demons he had his gambling problems. Talks about him so openly and of course um, that illness uh, meaning that he he's, he's lucky to be here uh, st- still still with us now to become that po- the the popular pundit that we see on telly and the radio, working for BT Sport, working for the BBC. And he was so close to losing it all. Um, gets gets emotional, absolutely. Gets really emotional talking about his young family and, and probably just the idea that he might not be here uh, if things had have took a little different turn. Um, and, and he's a proud, proud man now, trying to help out other people with, with their gambling problems, uh, any sort of addiction. And of course spreading the word about if anybody feels anything different in their bodies to get it checked out. And um, there's no better week, really, to to get this podcast with John out there. Um, having spent time with him recently, looking good, looking dapper, wearing a nice suit, a nice jacket, lovely shirt. Things are a little bit different because this week, I've just seen the big man live on telly doing the real Monty live, the real full Monty live. I should add, 
And for want of better terminology, he left it all hanging out there. Cock and balls, the lot. Not a problem for the big man, but all for a good cause. So well done to him. I really hope you guys enjoy this conversation. This is John Hudson. He likes to tell you if anyone will listen About his seven caps, his chocolate knees, his distinct lack of pace Now it's a long shot Welcome to the podcast, mate. Thank you. It's uh, it's an honour to have you uh, gracing this special little microphone that I've purchased. How's things? Things are good. Um, I've made a big sort of um, career change, if you like, and uh, country change in terms of I've recently moved up to Edinburgh. Mm. Uh, my wife is Scottish and um, we decided on the move because we'd been in Wales for nine years and... Uh, she felt that she wanted um, the children to to spend a bit more time, be around her parents, um, her mum and dad, who are not getting any younger. By the way, they're only in their seventies and they're very they're very fit and healthy. But we'd been in Wales for nine years. She'd had three little girls, and she just wanted to get her back up a little bit closer to her parents to, for them to spend a bit more time with the family. So. We've recently moved up to Edinburgh. We're getting used to the new surroundings and the girls are settling into the new schools, which is always uh, challenging. Um, but I have to say uh, they've embraced it and everybody's been friendly, very warming. As people would be aware, Edinburgh is a beautiful city. I feel very privileged and blessed to tell people that I live in Edinburgh now. It's got so much... Um, it's got uh, people admire the place and they get millions and millions of tourists and um, from America, China, Japan. They come from all over the world to visit Edinburgh. Yeah. And I feel very privileged to say that I've set up a home in Edinburgh. I think I felt the same moving from Inverness to, to Edinburgh, play for Hibs. Um, you know, the, the least... The, the less I, I mention my time at Hibs, the better. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll be getting lynched off the off those Hibs fans. But I live just outside Dal, Dalkeith. Yeah, you're, I know. You're on the road up there. It's it's quite nice to not be right bang in the centre because it's a it's a real touristy city, isn't it? But yeah. it's beautiful to make that little. Well, trip Dalkeith in. is fantastic in terms of a location. You're what you know. You're 15 minutes from the city centre. You're 20 minutes from the airport. You're spoilt with golf. You're just on the A1 there. Oh. Uh, you've up that coastline, up the A1, the likes of Craigie, Law, Gullan, North Berwick. The golf coast, yeah, as they call the, it. Yeah, the coast, fantastic. And um, it's a great location. And the people of Dalkeith have been really friendly because actually we rented there for a little while in Dalkeith. Um, but no, as I said, we made that big jump. Uh, I left my family, obviously, my mum and dad and my brother and sisters and... You know they weren't too uh, they weren't too pleased to see me moving up there. But uh, as I said, I, I'd been away lots of times in my life. I, le- I left I left home at at, um, at sixteen to go and pursue a football career. So uh, I was away for a long time. So I'm I'm quite used to being away from Wales. 
Um, and here I go again now. I've, I've made the decision to, uh, to support my wife, who was very supportive of me all my life, in particular throughout my, my, my cancer battle and everything. Um, so it was time for me to give something back to her. Do you find, it, obviously you mentioned there, she's closer to her family and stuff, but the, the big change from stopping playing, you're away from home more. Do you know what I mean? Mm. You're working now with the media and stuff like that. I, I find that you're away so much more, so it's nice for her to have that, that, that bit of support. Well, that's one of the reasons why when I was away quite a lot doing the, doing the media, sometimes um, I would be away four or five times a week. And she's, she's there with three little girls, hard work. Mm. Um, and I like taking the kids on the school run. I like chatting to the other mums and dads and asking them what they do for a living and what I'm they do. I'm glad you mentioned the dads there as well. <laughs> yeah, but uh, they all know what I do. Yeah. Um, which is quite nice to, to stand, you know, uh, dropping them off and chatting away, maybe getting to know one or two of the fathers and organising a game of, go organizing a game of golf with them. And, um, you know, as I said, I couldn't wait to retire in the end because I had so many injuries. Uh, I had two back operations, I had three operations on my knee. Um, I found when I got to about 33, 34 that it was becoming harder. The training sessions, the warm-ups always almost felt like a fully blown training session. Um, so when I retired, I, I, I listened to stories about players. Um, they really, really struggled where I was the opposite. I, I, I really couldn't wait for the day to pop my feet up. Um, to just relax, not not to think about going into training every day. I was quite happily retired, and I was very lucky because I went almost straight into the media. It's it's an interesting one because I can completely, um, you know, you're, you're you're saying there how you wanted to retire. That's exactly how I felt. Mm. It was almost that you were battling with your body day in day out just to prepare for training. Never mind the game, you yeah. know, going in before everyone else to get on the foam roller, tape my ankles up and stuff like that. And the day that I announced retirement, it was like a weight off my shoulders. Absolutely, I felt exactly the same. And it's not always the way, everybody's different. I, I'd enjoyed, you know, a glittering career. I broke records, I played for some of the biggest clubs, as you know. I, I was very young, uh, I was 19 going into the Arsenal team. That's very young, you're almost just out of school. Yeah. You know, I'd had, I'd had two years in the first team, a year in the first team at Luton. Um, and um, and then another big money move to West Ham and then Wimbledon and then a career change again up to Glasgow. So I hit certain heights as, as a footballer. I played with some of the best footballers in the country, around the world. And I can really be proud of my career. I made my family happy. I made my son proud. And, um, you know, football for a long time was, was all I thought of or my life. But I think when it's coming to the end, you start thinking about, well, you know, I've enjoyed this career. Now it's time for the 17, 18-year-old John Hartson to come through again. Uh, you, you're waiting for the next generation to come through. And I was quite happy coming to the end, uh, looking for another career path, enjoying my days off, Maybe being able to put that little bit of weight on and not be under pressure. Yeah. In front of you know my my shorts being a little bit looking like speedos rather than shorts on a Saturday. Um, and I had many conversations with people like Brian Robson and Gordon Strachan and Martin O'Neill about retirement. And you know they always said to me, Gordon said the same. He said he had two bad hips. He needed two hip, hip operations. Um, Brian Robson played till he was 39, um, so he realised how important it was for me struggling, and uh, he went on and played quite, um, you know, it was quite a, a, a good age, 39, um, and I was just, I was just contented. I was really contented to retire. I wanted to spend more time at home with my children, um, and that's how it was for me, really. You talk about weight issues there. What was the worst club? Was there one in particular where there'd be some heavy fines? I know mm. I'm quite lucky that I don't really put weight on, no yeah. matter what I'd eat for the next month. But there'd always be testing at clubs, body weight tests, you know, body mm. fat tests every six yeah. weeks or so. And some of the boys, they'd be getting punished. There'd be some early mornings on the spin bike. Well, I can remember George Graham initially, because when I went from Luton, I was always a big strapping centre forward, but I was very trim uh, because, you know, when you're young, 
you're you're fit. You can eat what you like because you haven't quite you know you're burning off that energy all the time and that fat. And when I went to Arsenal, George was very strict on your weight. Now he'd he'd weigh you um, on a Monday, uh, sorry, on a Friday, and then he'd weigh you on the Monday. Yeah. And there was one particular game where I got suspended, and I went home on the Friday. I met my mates in my local pub on a Friday night. I was suspended, and um, I decided to go back to Wales, which I did quite regular. My parents were there, my family were there, and. Um, Met my mates on the Friday night. I drove down the M4, three and a half hours into Swansea. So I had a good drink on the Friday. Saturday morning, uh, my mum made me a cooked breakfast. Saturday afternoon, uh, I went to watch Swansea City play. So I'd had a pie yeah. and a bit of chips in the afternoon. Saturday night, I'm out with the lads till two in the morning. Sunday, my mum invites me round for Sunday lunch. So I've had a bacon roll in the morning. I've had a big Sunday roast beef dinner off my mum. Um, so my dad said to me, I've got a pool match tonight. My dad played for the local pool team. Yeah. He said, we've got a ma with a man down. Do you want to play? So I reorganised my my train <laughs> to get back to London. Or I might have been driving, I'm not quite sure. But I thought I'd go in the morning rather than go back Sunday night. I went to help the pool team out. They were one short. So I'd had six or seven pints, a curry on the way home. So I left my house about up at six that morning on the Monday, drove all the way back up the M4, went into training, and I was 11 pounds overweight from what I was on the Friday. I thought you were going to say that I was the same weight because I was young. Oh, but no, no, no. This is when I was like 19, 20, 21. But I really piled it on. Yeah. And George got me in the office. He said, How much do you really want to be a professional footballer? He said, is this what it means to you to put weight on, go home on a weekend, go on the drink? He said, I've brought you here. I've paid record money for you. You're Britain's most expensive teenager in the history of football. He said, you really are in a privileged position. You're playing alongside the England centre-forward, almost the England back four, mm. which was uh, Seaman in gold, Dixon, Adams, Keown, Bold, Winterburn. Yeah. He said... You know, have a look at yourself, John. I expect more from you. And from that day, really, I, I knuckled down. You know, certainly for a good few years after that. And them words, um, you know, really, really um, made a difference to me in terms of I realising what I had to do when when a guy like George Graham, you know, the former Arsenal double winner, a double winner as a player, double winner as a manager. When he, when he speaks to you like that, you know, it, it really hits home. You needed that to happen, almost. Because mm. you remember that story now, don't you? Yeah, definitely. I remember that story now. And um, I, as you say, I always was better under a stricter manager. Yeah. Um, you know, somebody like Martin O'Neill and uh, Harry Redknapp, you know, people that people that wouldn't always, um, would always tell you straight and exactly how it was and what they expected of you. I was always, um, I needed that. I certainly needed that. What was it like for you as a young guy, probably a raw young guy from Swansea, um, what, I'm not sure what area of Swansea you came from, in terms of, do you think too much importance or, or these footballers these days are judged so harshly without really looking at their background, where they've come from, all of a sudden you have to become this somebody in the public eye but really, deep down, you're just a raw lad who's enjoying life. Mm. It's tough, isn't it? Well, it can be. You know, you, you you can, you know, you can go places and not quite appreciate the situation that you're in. You know, um, and I made mistakes. You know, I made mistakes. I um, I gambled heavily. I, I stole a credit card um, because I eventually became an addict, and um, I went out. I stayed out late. Um, I probably drank too much, I probably ate too much, and if I'd gone through my career, probably, you know, um, really, really um, getting more involved with the diet and, and the fitness, I might have gone higher again. I might have gone out to Spain and played with the talent that I had. Um, the problem I had probably, although I had a good career, um, you know, I, I probably went through my career probably a stone heavier than what I should have. Yeah. But, you know, I, I always remained very humble. I um, Sometimes I get a little bit embarrassed when somebody comes up to me and asks me for an autograph or a picture because I'm so normal. I'm very, very down to earth. I'm, 
I feel as if I'm, I'm pretty much the same boy that left Swansea all them years ago to pursue a football career mm. without really recognising, you know, you're an inspiration for lots of people, especially now coming through the illness as well. Um, and as you get older, the one good thing is you get wiser and you get wiser to people, you get wiser to decision making. And um, I certainly appreciate now uh, everything that I've been through, what I've had. And, um, you know, I'm in a really good place now in my life. You you definitely think that if you, say, played in this era now where there is more staff, there's sports scientists, dietitians, you think you would have been a, a better player? Because I speak to, like, Lee Trundle is, a, is an example of, in the lower leagues yeah. where he he's so much healthier now than he was back when he played, but would he have lost something? Mm. You know, he, he had that edge as a player. Yeah. He was a little bit overweight and stuff like that, but almost that's what made him who he was. Well, that's right. That's why managers, look at the managers that bought me. It was George Graham, then it was Harry, then it was Joe Kinnear, then it was Gordon Strack, and then it was Martin O'Neill, then it was Brian Robson. I worked under three or four managers of Wales. Mike Smith gave me my debut. Then it was uh, Bobby Gould, then it was Mark Hughes, then it was John Toshak. You know, these are serious managers. Yeah. You know, these are no mugs. Martin O'Neill, Gordon Strack and Arsene Wenger I'd worked under and played under. Um, so, you know, it's all hindsight. It's all with hindsight, isn't it? Maybe if I had gone through my career, then I wouldn't have had the power. Yeah. You know, I was very physical. I used to love bullying centre-halves, leaning on them, using my physical presence, my weight to back in and roll them. Managers saw that and thought, that's what I want in my team. That's what we lack. So if I'd gone through my career um, a little bit lighter, um, looked a little bit better in photos, in my kit, blah, 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 I might not have had the career that I had. You know, I think I think it's horses for courses. Mm. But personally, my, my view is, um, I think if I tuned into the diet a little bit more and just showed that little bit more discipline throughout my career, um, I think I would have probably played longer and I'd have got further. Yeah. Um, it's not a regret. It, it's just a general view of uh, where I was. Yeah. And also, if you played in this era now, you'd probably have to play the lone frontman role week in, week out, maybe being asked to run the channels yeah. a little bit more often than you were used to <laughs> when, when you would have played with a partner. Cool. Well, the thing was, you know, I think I did. I played that role for Wales many a times, but I had great pace alongside me. You know, yeah. Seven or eight years, our front three was gigs. Hearts and Bellamy, you know, and I can remember Mark Hughes used to say to me, John, <coughs> when we are defending, I expect Ryan and Craig to be right back, defending almost in left back positions. Okay. But with you, he said, what you've got to do is, he said, stay on that halfway line. Yeah. He says, because when we break, he said, these two guys are absolutely rapid. He so said, you, you need to get in that box. So just hang around that halfway line, make sure when we break, you get into that box when the ball comes in the box because you knew of my. I was a finisher. I, I had a great. I had a great. Um, I had a great habit of being in the right place at the right time. Uh, I scored big goals in big games, last minute goals, um, and that is something I think was was a gift from God. I, I never really worked on that. I worked on my finishing, but sometimes you look at players and you think big game players. I always played in the big games. Yeah. You know, I always played in the derby games for, for Celtic and I was trusted. I was trusted as a player, which which makes me feel very proud. You're talking about the pace, gigs, one side, Bellamy on the other, mm. and then even legs, lads like Simon Davis, yeah. probably an underrated player. He'd also have the uh, have the legs to catch up with you and make those late runs into the box. Simon was excellent on that right-hand side. It was it was Mark Delaney and Simon Davis. You know, yeah. they had, uh, from similar parts of the world, um, they're both from down west Wales, um, Simon a bit further, uh, Mark, I know it's Kamar than we, um, um, Mark Delaney of course, whose career was cut short through injury which is a shame, but we had a terrific team, Gary Speed, God rest his soul, wonderful man, great captain, brilliant friend of mine, he, Gary actually went and played left back. So he allowed that little bit more balance that we had with, with the likes of... Um, Pembridge centre-field. Pembridge, sitting, normally Pembo, but he could get forward. Sav. You had Sav, who, who covered every blade of grass. Wonderful attitude to the game. An absolute workhorse. Again, it was a shame. I roamed with Sav. It was a shame that, um, that him and John Toshak 
quite they fell out and he never played again uh, for Wales um, I don't think he played in the four or five years that John was in charge mm. which was a shame for Rob because I know he'd have walked on broken glass to play for Wales but listen I can't comment on their relationship obviously um, and then it was Simon uh, lots of talent and you know um, work rate in the team lots of ability and myself through the middle with Giggs and Bellamy Nathan Blake I think could have played a, a more a bigger role because I used to quite like playing with a big striker Okay. I played with Ian Dowie at West Ham and then I played with Chris Sutton at Celtic You know, because they took a lot of the weight a lot of the role off that me jumping for every ball we could then take it in turns you could get on the second ball exactly in the box. so you could be a bit fresher you know, and uh, I always felt there was a bit more, uh, there was lots more uh, scope to play me and Blakey, and a guy that I've 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 hit it off with Nathan, and uh, we're, we're like every time we see each other, there's a bond there. We, we created that little bit of bond between us, and um, that was a shame because I would love love to have played more with him. Again, you and Roberts, you and almost stepped aside for me to come into the team. But again, I, I think there was there was room to play the big man on myself at times. He played once or twice as well in 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 front of me. Yeah. But I think as the years went on, I became Mark Hughes' number one. I think he almost built that that front line around me. Um, he could see I was banging in goals in Europe for Celtic, and I was going to be his number nine. And um, I performed admirably for Wales, admirably for Wales. But it's just a shame that we just couldn't quite, you know. Ultimately, we just didn't quite get the job done. We had a great team. Lots of talent. Um, we just didn't, couldn't quite get, get over the line. Did you ever feel pressure? You know, centre forward for Wales over the years has been, you know, almost a legendary position. Mm. Ian Rush, going back, John Charles, John uh, Big Tosh, yeah. Ian Rush, Dean Saunders, Mark Hughes. Yeah. Loads of them, and then you were the next in line. I never really, I never felt pressure, and that's the gospel truth. I, I felt very proud and privileged. And, and, and I, I like to think that I embraced that number nine, you know. I embraced that position. I was so passionate about playing for Wales. The two things I always wanted to do as a child was become a professional footballer and play for Wales. Mm. And I managed to do both of them, make my parents proud, make my children proud. And to have basically worn that number nine shirt for 10 years, that's what it was, untouched. You know, I played every game that I was available to play. Um, you know, representing your country at senior level for me doesn't get bigger, doesn't get better. You know, you can you can win individual honours, player of the year, goal of the season, play in all the best stadiums of the world in the Champions League, um, played in cup finals f for Arsenal and, and Celtic, of course. But for me, you know, being a Welsh speaker from Swansea, um, being born in, in a in a Welsh sort of environment, uh, Welsh school as a young boy. And then pictures of Mark Hughes and Ian Rush and Dean Saunders, these were, these were iconic, these were my heroes. Mm. I grew up watching these boys play. So to have taken that number nine, if you like, from them um, was undoubtedly the, the greatest thing I ever achieved in football was representing my country. Do you, do you feel sometimes people will ask me, what's the best thing that happened in, in your career? And obviously, same answer as you've just given, representing my country. doesn't matter how many times you do it. But at the time... It's almost part of your job. You know, you're at your club, you, you play football, you get named in the squad. Right, next week I'm travelling away with the Wales squad. Brilliant, but you can't be going in there overawed and no. dead excited. It's just part of the job, isn't it? It's another training session with a different group of lads. Hopefully yeah. you play and, and you get some goals. But it's after your career, yeah. after you finish, that you really sit back and you have a look at shirts, caps and stuff and think, yeah, that was, that was special. Great moments, and the situation that I found was, as as like an elite player, if you like, I couldn't quite play every game at Arsenal. I had Wrighty and Burkamp and Merson, three fantastic players. Yeah. So I never felt uh, I I belonged there. Like when I came with Wales, I felt I belonged there. I owned that shirt. Yeah. I owned it. No one was getting it off me, and I went and I trained at Celtic. I owned that shirt. I, be, I, got, I went in the team and I belonged there. And if I was fit, I played. And you get that sense of belonging. No better feeling. I didn't feel as if I had to prove myself. I relaxed. I was playing. I was part of the, I was part of the back of the bus crew. Yeah. I was part of the, you know, um, 
just first name on the team sheet. And there was a belonging there, and I, I'd earned that. Nobody gives that to you. I'd earned that. And when I went in to play for Wales, and I, 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 I um, you know, I, um, I raised the level um, in terms of me rep playing that. Now, now, I had Mark Hughes as a manager. Mark had played that role himself. So for him to have played me so many times, you know, and Martin O'Neill, I, I, I had to sort of unlock that Larson and Sutton partnership, yeah. if you like. And Chris ended up playing midfield and playing centre-back because he was so versatile. Yeah. And I think when you achieve that as part of your career, it's a really good feeling because you, just, you didn't just amble through a career. I go from club to club. You excelled at the yeah. clubs and you scored big goals and you got to semi-finals and finals. And that is what's pleasing for me. You know, that, that feeling of belonging in a team and staying in that team and being a consistent footballer. These are the things that I'll remember. Football's a crazy world. People often talk and people know from an academy age, football is a ruthless business. Oh, yeah, it is dog-eat-dog, dog, no doubt about mm -hmm. it. Probably one of the toughest professions if you're looking at figures, how many lads make it. Yeah. But you still, you just said it there, mm -hmm. you still have to earn the respect of your peers, of the players in that dressing room. When you first walk in, whether you're a big money signing, yeah. whether you're a free transfer, all eyes are on you. Because it is, and that, that dressing room can be quite a lonely place. It can mm -hmm. be a tough place because, you know, um, you look at players now and a lot of them have got, um, um, you know, their self-confidence is low. They don't believe in themselves. They don't, you know, mental issues and dealing with having to perform in front of a crowd. There's massive pressure, you know. Um, and I was lucky that I, I never, ever got affected by any of that, you know. Um, uh, my confidence was always quite high. Um, maybe it wasn't always when I was younger, 12, 13, 14, because I always played in teams above my age so when I was 13 I was playing in the under 15s when I was 15 I was playing in a men's league in Swansea so I was pretty shy and my boy's pretty much the same now but I think when you prove yourself and um, you know you, you have to go into a team and you have to show your character and I've never been able I've, I've never been one to to not try and express myself I think one of the things my father always said to me don't be afraid to show your true colours yeah you know show show who you are, show what you're made of, show where you come from, you know, and um, I always felt I'd done that. But football can be, it can be horrible. It can eat you up and, and spit you out at the same time. You can be a darling in the crowd. You can get booed. You can have back page headlines. Next thing, if I'm kicking a bloody hanging basket in Swansea High Street because I'm drunk with my mates, foolish, boisterous, stupidity, I'm front page. Yeah. I'm bringing embarrassment to my family. The next week, I'm scoring the winning goal for Arsenal against, you know, and I'm and I'm back page. It's dealing with all these emotions, and and as you said earlier on in the interview, it's like I'm a normal boy from a council estate. Yeah. If any of them did it, it wouldn't get a mention. Yeah. I've not forgot myself. I'm not saying this right. I'm not trying to defend myself. But what I'm saying is, I was just very normal. Yeah. And to my credit, I've always remained normal. You know, I'll, I'll you, talk to anybody. And you, you know? didn't want your friends from back home to think. Fucking hell, John's mm. changed. Why, why is he not coming out with us? Why is he not having a drink with us? Yeah, but you know what? I never, I never felt that because I didn't have to feel it because I never did change. Yeah. I always remained who I was. So people can put me on a pedestal, you know, the Celtic fans, I'm hero, blah blah blah, and but I don't put myself up there. Yeah, you know, I always have remained, um, and, and I think that that's the advice I'd give to people. You know, don't don't get too high with the highs. And don't get too down with the lows because football's a roller coaster. You're up, you're down. Um, but towards the end of my career, I'd had several, had a long career. I'd been kicked black and blue. I'd had operations and um, I was feeling tired. I was feeling tired with it all. And um, in the end, I, I, was, I was more than happy to take a different career path. I, I've... I played for a number of clubs, including loans, journeyman, footballer. Yourself, you moved to a lot of different clubs, not as a journeyman, as a, mm -hmm. as a very, very high-level professional. How did you used to enter dressing rooms? You know, personally, I'd go in and I'd suss it out. I'm, I'm the guy who likes to suss things out, stay quiet, relatively quiet mm. for a month or so, 
yeah. you know, see see what the pecking order is in that dressing room. See who likes to hear their own voice. In, yeah, in the, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and then slowly you, you blend mm -hmm. in. Or did you used to go in all guns blazing? No, I never. I never went in all guns blazing. I, I think I, I let my football do the talking. I scored on my second goal for Arsenal. On my second game against Coventry, we won 1-0 at the, of the old Highfield Road. Yeah. Um, 1-0 for Arsenal. We beat Coventry. Um Dave Rennie was at the back for Coventry that day, big big centre big centre back. West Ham scored on my home debut, and I think you let your football do the talking. You know, I scored against Spurs on my home debut. West Ham's big rivals, so then the players are jumping on you. You basically make an immediate impact. But I think you're right. I think you you recognise straight away who, who are the the shouters in the dress and who, who the jokers are, who the shy ones are, and then as you go along, you you normally tend to hook up with one person or another person uh, somebody that's coming in in the same direction as you in the morning yeah maybe then you organize to share a lift so you become pally with him and then he's pally with three or four others and that's how it generally develops you know yeah. and it's interesting because when you when you first go to a team for me it was always um a little bit of a worry not not so much a worry in terms of made me physically worry but where do I sit on the coach? Yeah. Oh, you know it's horrible. When you first go onto that coach, it's like there's a, there's a round table at the back because all, all the coaches were quite state-of-the-art. Had a coffee machine, you'd have a meal afterwards on the way home from the game. So you'd have that alcove at the back, so you'd have the big players there, the captain, you know, the characters, the goal scorers. And then you'd have another load then, um, maybe the foreign players would all sit together. And it's almost like you have to go and say to the players, does somebody sit there? You have to ask. Can, yeah. Can I actually sit in that chair? Yeah. And they're like, oh, do you know what? Um, he normally sits there. He sat there for three years. Oh, right. Okay. I'll leave that one then. Well, it, 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 like, it works from both ways where mm. one, you don't want to sit in the captain seat or one of the big players. Oh, that's right. And it probably stems from, as a young lad, a senior pro would have told you. Yeah. Get the fuck out of my seat. <laughs> right, so you learn from that. And also yeah. you don't want to get stuck with a boring table. That's right. And you think, oh, I'm right. stuck here for the season now. But the good thing is, once once your character comes out, and um, they're almost then, come and sit here. Yeah. They want to sit with you, you yeah. know, whether it's a card school or whether it's a few beers at the back with some of the senior lads. I was enjoying a beer. I loved the beer. And sometimes when we had good results, you know, we'd be allowed to stop in the offy, get a few cans. And, and take them on the long journey back home. Uh, managers would do that back then so much. Not much so sure whether it would happen now. But uh, a lot of the managers that I played under, if you had a good result, they would be more than happy for you to take a few beers out of the players' bar and set them on the way home. It was all sensible, you know, as if we were partying all over that'd the bus. That'd be later on. Yeah, that'd be later. Yeah, we'd all arrange then. When, when, did, you, home. <laughs> when did you sense that stopping, like... Uh, personal experience playing for Bangor in the League of Wales, there was beers on the bus. Uh, for professional clubs, starting out in 2005, not quite. Only yeah. after big wins or, you know... Get to big, the cup final or something. Big yeah. trials yeah. For, yeah. for the club. Whereas you would have felt it, you would have been involved in that almost weekly. Yeah. But it probably changed somewhere along the line. Under well, it changed at Arsenal because Tony Adams, I remember it vividly, Tony came out one morning and... Um, uh, Tony Adams had a, had a reputation. He'd, he'd crashed his car. He'd, he'd been to jail. He'd cut his head open, uh, falling down the stairs or falling in the bar. The liquid lunches they used to call at Arsenal were six or seven of the lads almost daily after after, after training would all meet up and go to the local bars around St Albans and Hertfordshire, and um, they'd be in there till six seven o'clock. They'd have they'd have a load of pints. They'd have a bit of lunch, liquid lunch. That's what yeah. it was called. And there was a big school. There was a big school at Arsenal. And I got involved in one or two of them liquid lunches. And there was one particular morning um, where I think Tony Adams had, um, had uh, realised that he, he maybe had a little bit of a problem. And he lined us all up against the wall one day in training. I'll never forget it. He said, lads, can I have a minute with you, please? He said, can you all just line up against the wall? So the physio was there. Uh, the manager was there. Um, the masseur was there the reserve team manager was there George Armstrong Stuart Houston all the coaches we're all there lining up against the wall and Tony goes out about five steps in front of us looks at us all and says lads I'm an alcoholic and I'm going to need your help he said come on let's carry on let's get going let's go and train and to this day I believe he's not had a drink 
Tony Adams. Now that for me means more as a man than any game that I saw him lead in. Any game that he captained England, captained Arsenal, lifted the FA Cup, lifted league trophies, won doubles. To me, he stands as a bigger man by doing that than anything he did in football. Ballsy. Because to come out and admit that he's an alcoholic, that acceptance, and to know and to realise he'll never have a drink again. Inspiring, brave, everything. What a man, what a leader for me, Tony Adams. And, um, what's that for me? knock on the door there. A little delay there, John. Our table's ready, mate. I know, but, uh, yeah, we've yeah, got yeah, a bit, carry bit on. of a stick now. No, so I was just Tony talking Adams. about Tony Adams there, and, um, you know, he's a great man, and obviously he'd had a lot of problems drinking, got himself into a lot of bother. But he came to a conclusion that he didn't want to live that life anymore, and um, he wanted to make changes in his life. And um, to today, he's helped so many people, so many players with, with drinking problems. He set up the Sporting Chance Clinic, and um, I believe he's still sober. And as I said, you know, I've had problems with gambling. I've not had a bet now for seven years. I attend meetings regular. And I hit rock bottom when I was gambling. I hit rock bottom. I couldn't carry on anymore. I couldn't keep lying to people, letting people down. Um, and I decided to make a change. And it was a drastic change. Um, and it's something that I can honestly say, if I hadn't have stopped gambling, I would have either have been dead or I'd have been in jail. What was your rock bottom, John? My rock bottom was when my wife um, packed her bags and she said she was going. And normally um, my wife will used to put up with quite a lot with me, the lies and the gambling and the deceit. And, um, and she put up with it. I didn't realise what I was doing to her, what I was doing to the family. And then ultimately she put it back on me and she said, I, she said, I think so much of you. She said, I can't sit back and watch you put yourself, what you're putting yourself through. She says, and there's no way I'm gonna sit back and watch you put our girls through this. Mm. And she packed the bags and um, she was going, she was leaving me. And I thought, I've gotta do something, you know. And I felt as low as I'd felt. Um, and then she said, you gotta get help. She said, you've got to get help. She said, to save your relationship with me to save your relationship with the kids, just for you, John. She says, you're out of control, you're gone, she said. And I went on the computer and I um, I looked for a Gamblers Anonymous meeting in Swansea on that night, Sunday night, um, it was. It was around about early October 2011. And I went to the meeting and that was difficult. And um, straight away I was accepted and they said, look, you're not John Hartson here, the famous footballer the iconic Swansea Wales star. They said, you're, you're John and you'll be treated the same as everybody else. You've clearly got a problem. If you stick with us and you make the changes necessary and you do the 12 steps and you do everything that's asked of you, we will get you clean. And for seven years now, almost, I've, uh, I've not placed a bet. I've not bought a lottery ticket. Um, I've got more money now um, uh, financially in terms of paying for everything, setting up my family um, than what I ever had when I played football and I earned thousands and millions. So I'm in a great place mentally um, just because gambling no longer controls my life. That was almost pushed on you though, you know, your wife threatening to leave you. Were yeah. you... Was there an element of, right, going to Gamblers Anonymous um, because you had to, or, or, or were you open with everybody from the get-go? Did it take a little bit of time? Was there any relapses? Well, that's a good point because nobody will ever be forced to go and get clean. You've got to want to do it yourself. And I, I'd come to a stage where I'd let so many people down that I was determined to change. Now, when I first went, I wasn't quite aware how... I would get on with things because because I'd had 20 years of living this particular mm. life of gambling every penny that I had. Um, so for me to have gone straight away, I, ne I need to see how does this work? Is it a miracle? When the guys are saying to me, um, you know, if you if you follow the program, 
and you show a commitment, a willingness um, to do what we say and a willingness to get receipts for absolutely everything that you buy. Right. You'll have a certain amount of money allocated to you. If you go to the pub, pub and buy a pint, ask the barman to give you a receipt. If you go and get a burger, if you go and get a steak and chips, £12, ask for a receipt. I had to produce receipts for everything that I had. I wasn't in control of my own money, any wages that I had coming in. I would be given a certain allowance. And now, today, um, I know they say it's one day at a time, uh, addictions, but I'm in a situation now where um, gambling is no longer in my thoughts. You know, I actually detest it now. But I would never ever say to somebody, stop gambling. I would never tell somebody because they've got to find out themselves. Yeah. You know, they really, really have. They've got to want to stop for them. Yeah. And although initially uh, I was, I hit my rock bottom, a lot of people have to hit that place. Lots of people don't. And uh, they tend to go to please everybody else, their wife, their parents, their football club, their manager. And then they relapse. Mm. They go for two years, three years, and they're back to square one because they're not, not showing that commitment. Um, but I've shown that, and as I said, it's uh, it's the best thing I've ever done. I know I came through the cancer battle, which ultimately was my life. Um, and I, I had to survive that for my, for my children as well, um, and my wife and my family. But the gambling is absolutely vital. First thing I did when I moved to Edinburgh was find a GA fellowship. That was more important to me than finding a house because I have to recover. I have to continue with my recovery. Yeah. You know, and um, if I'm right, everything's right. My relationship, my wife is right. My, my kids are right. Everything, everything revolves around that if I'm well and I'm not gambling. So it's, it's been a massive, massive six and a half years where I've been clean financially, mentally, focusing in, yeah. work, jobs, offers coming in right, left and centre, working for BBC, big shows, working for BT, being trusted, managers coming to me, asking me, could I get in touch with their players because they have a problem. So people are trusting me and doors are opening right, left and centre. I spoke at conventions, I spoke at um, big centres, gambling, but out to Malta, big gambling convention over there. I've spoken about the addiction, how I got clean, and inspiring other people because gambling is a huge problem. It is ruining people's lives, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, I was very, I feel, I feel very lucky that I was able to get a control of it and, uh, and to stay clean, but I'm very aware that it's an addiction mm. and it's a constant not so much a constant battle for me, because I'm really trained in now and focused. It's not a constant battle. It's not like being an alcoholic where I'm gasping for a lager or an ex-smoker where I'm gasping for a fag. My mother says to me, she's 30 years without a fag. She gasps every morning when she smells a fag around her. I don't gasp for a gamble. It's a real commitment and, and a truth that um, that I have to show every day of my life. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned the illness and how you fought to stay alive. Mm. You know, the gambling obviously is not a life and death mm. by itself. But the fact is, if you would have carried on, your life would have just been a lonely one. You'd be by yourself. I hear some horrific stories mm. about gamblers where they start off, they are at the top of their tree. They're a bank manager and they're, a, they're an aerial manager. They're a... Um, looking after lots and lots of areas. Top of the tree, 300 grand in a pension, set for life. Go to the casino one night and they win five grand. They're thinking, oh, great. Following week, they're there again. They lose 10 grand. Oh, I can win that five back. To win big, you're a bet big. And they've lost every penny. They've got no pension. They've got no job. Their wives have left them. They don't see their children anymore. They're out of their house. And within 10 years, they've gone from being at the top to absolutely homeless and out of their home. And then almost suicidal. Yeah. Lost every bean. This is happening yeah. on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. 
gambling. It, they don't just say gambling ruins people's lives as a saying, as a myth. It ruins people's lives. And with my hand on my heart, if I hadn't got right when I did, I would have been one of them people. Yeah. I have no hesitation in saying that. I'm sure going to the meetings and stuff like that was probably like a cleanse for you, you know, because you, you went and you embraced it and you knew it had to happen. So it's like a cleanse. And then following on from, on from that, you know, you've, you have your work in the media and stuff. Do you do anything extra in terms of, did you see a psychologist? Is there a, a positive affirmations that you say to yourself, you know, to get into that positive mind frame? Well, I, I didn't. I didn't go and see a, a psychologist. I, I've not had therapy. I've um, I basically just been used a lot of common sense and uh, the love that I have for my family and my and my, and my children, um, and to be more responsible and to grow up and um, to show that little bit of spirit. You know, that little bit of fight that that got me to these big clubs and that got me through my illness. And I, I, I've treated that the same way. I, I wish I could treat eating to the way that I, <laughs> I treated gambling because I still can't stop bloody eating and munching crisps and bloody stopping in services for crisps and bottle of Lucas Aid. And, but um, no, that's how I've gone and done it really and the importance and the pressure. You know, I, I always think to myself, if I, had, if I gambled again, I'll die. Mm. Now, I won't die physically but I will lose everything. Yeah. I will lose my, and I can't afford to lose everything. They're my world. I go home after three days away. My little four-year-old runs into my arms. My son, Johnny, phones me up. He says, Dad, I had a great training session tonight. My eldest daughter says to me, oh, I've started a new job, and me and my boyfriend are going over to Holland. We go, and this is what, this is what keeps me alive. Yeah. You know, these little things about your family. and So... I had to get right. I get a bit emotional when I talk about my family, but that was, you know, that was one of the reasons why I managed to get myself clean, really, for them. You, you've mentioned uh, the illness. Mm -hmm. what, what do you remember at that time? Or was it all a blur? Oh, it was a bit of a blur, really. Um, a really big blur. All I know is that um, I was very lucky. You know, the cancer went to my brain and I was in big, big trouble at one stage. Um, you know, they'd not give me much hope. And um, for some reason, I managed to get myself through that. You know, it was very, very difficult um, watching how everybody else was reacting. I can't remember much about it. All I know is that I got some tremendous support, some brilliant letters of encouragement and, 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 um, and faith. You know, everybody was praying for me, uh, even even clubs that I'd not quite always had a great relationship with, um, clubs that I played for their big rivals. The fans were superb and it quickly made me realise that, you know, when it's life or death and it's health, football is, you know, football just plays a, a long distance second, you know. Um, and I, was, I, I come through and I'm very, very blessed to have come through, very lucky um, and for whatever reason. It maybe wasn't my time. Um, and I just want to see my children grow up. That's what I want to do. You know, and that all got nearly so taken away from me. Um, so having come through that, uh, you know, and now the simple things in life, the appreciation I have of every day spending with my kids, um, you know, going for a walk on the beach, just sucking that fresh air that's coming in off the sea, breathing it in, filling your lungs, chasing your kids up and down the path and all that and the sand and watching them jump for joy and when you've nearly come close to losing all that when you get a chance then I don't like I don't like the second chance one um, I just think when you when you've got another opportunity then uh, to put things right and and to stay healthy um, it's it's amazing the feeling that you get from seeing that when you when you've seen it before but not appreciated it mm. But then when you see it for a second time, it's like, wow, it, the feeling just goes through you like a, like a riptide, really. Um, so time with my family, my kids, my, my wife, um, close friends is, is, is a, everything to me now because it all nearly got taken away from me. Do you think you're a different person now, you, you know, your personality and stuff from before and after the illness? A million percent, I think. I was always, I was always a decent enough fella. I was always good company. 
I was a little bit reckless at times. Maybe uh, you know I got you know involved with. Uh, maybe I was easily led into bookies and trying to be a people pleaser. Yeah, yeah. maybe. Yeah, not 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 very wise. And the one thing I said there was, you get a bit older, you get a bit wiser. You know, if I've got an early train journey, I, I won't bother the night before. I go to bed early. I'll pack my bag and. You know, you, you think ahead a bit more. Um, and people do this when they're 19, 20. Yeah. You know, but there was no way I was doing that back then. You know, I was out till, till the bloody, till the, it was morning light, you know, with the lads and in and out of clubs and blah, 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 you know. And I was playing for Arsenal, you know. So, um, but the one good thing, I repeat myself now, is like, as you get older, you make better decisions. You're wiser to people. You're wiser to your company. You know, you, you feel that responsibility of... Of bringing your children up and making your children proud, I like my dad. Yeah, no, it's it. It's a good one to go back a little bit. Mm. You're talking your Arsenal days. Tony Adams, when he stepped out mm -hmm. and spoke to you all, you know the the culture then was so different. Was it that you know you're you're talking about your respect for him for doing that? Was that instant, or was there an element? You know that that team feeling the lads are looking mm. at each other a little bit and thinking what's what's going on here what's happening well we with actually Tony? thought we're thinking well, are we going to lose our tuesday drinking yeah but we know? actually thought when he said right lads you know we're all nudging each other thinking oh bloody hell you know what lamppost has he drove into last night yeah, you yeah. know and, but no it was inspiring and i think from then on not immediately but i think a few of the lads you know curbed it a little bit arson wenger arrived at the club and the people like Steve Bold and Wrighty and, and Merce and Nige, um, Deco, David Seaman, I think they all will say now publicly that Arsene Wenger single-handedly put three or four years on top of their careers. Mm. He got them into the right food, the right balance, um, the, right, the right intake, the training methods, the warming up, the warming down. They all won titles. They all had more bigger contracts. At 33, Steve Bold signed a new three-year deal. Lee Dixon, the same. They got back into the England fold, you know, because of Wenger. And uh, I think as we talk about Arsenal and Wenger, I've got, I've got to say about Wenger, you know, yes, he's had, a, he's had a barren time of late. They've won three FA Cups in the last four years. I think the crowd um, want to see him uh, challenging for titles and things like this. But he's a great man, and he's been brilliant. You know, the, his institutionalised the club there, um, gone to the Emirates, not had money for years and years and years to spend in the move to the Emirates because of the because uh, of the um, financial difficulties with the club putting so much into the new stadium. He's been criticised for it. Now I'm not saying that uh, he hasn't had his time and it's time to go. They need to freshen things up. But I just think Arsene Wenger at Arsenal, you know, he deserves the respect when he does leave. I think he will leave pretty soon. I think the, you know, the pressure on him now, no top four this season. I don't think they'll win the Europa League. I don't think they're good enough. They play AC Milan, obviously, this week. Um, but I think that man, you know, a lot of foreign coaches came after him and he changed a lot. Mm. You know, he, 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 football that he played there, the Invincibles, the Cups, um, you know, the joy that he gave the Arsenal supporters. So it was Arsene Wenger that came in then, and he, he, you know, as I said, he changed everything. He changed everything for a lot of players. And the old, the old pros in that dressing room, big drinkers at the time and stuff like that. Going to the days where you were the old head, probably Celtic, mm. um, you know, seen as a, a cult hero at Celtic, legendary player there. What were you like with the young players? I was good with the young players. I really was. I always had time for them. Um, you know, uh, the young players we had coming through there with Craig Beatty, Sean Maloney, um, uh, the likes of Stan Petrov, say young, Stan's five years younger than me. Um, you know, they, they were great lads. It was very difficult for them to break in because you had Hearts and Larson and Sutton. So any young striker coming through uh, was either hoping that there was an injury or, or say, in a nice way, the, the only way to get in type of thing, um, or one of us would move on. Yeah. But for five years, you know, we, we won titles, we won cups, we got to a Cup final. Um, you know, we, we, we ruled it up there. Um, between We scored 440 goals between us. You know, Henrik got 240, I got 110, Chris got 88. 
you know, the three, three of them, Hearts and Larson, Sutton, 440 goals for Celtic. It's a lot of goals. And, um, you know, it's great when we all get together. But going back to young players, you know, Celtic has a, has a tradition of bringing young players through. Uh, and, and buying young players and, and nurturing them on and they've got a great manager now in Brendan Rodgers they're going for their second treble mm. um, Rangers I have to say to their credit they're getting a little bit closer um, maybe Celtic have took their eye off the ball took their foot off the gas a little bit thinking this could be another doddle where Rangers have given them something to think about maybe um, I still think Celtic are the stronger team by a long way personally Um but you know it's great to you know to go back to Celtic and and, and the, the rapport that I enjoyed with them fans um, for five years. I nearly went to Middlesbrough right. under Steve McLaren, um, but Gordon Strachan said go to play for Celtic. John, he said you get a load of goals up there. Uh, Martin O'Neill has bid six million pound for you. He said you know off you go, son. And um, it was a great decision in my life because I can't go anywhere today. Whether we're here talking to you or I'm in, in Carnarvon, near Carnarvon Castle in North Wales, or whether I'm in a caravan site with my kids going camping, whether I'm in Dubai, the States, anywhere on this planet, I can't go without bumping into a Celtic fan. Mm. They're just gigantic. Like Rangers, like Manchester United, like Liverpool. They are, across the world, incredible fan mm. base. And to think that for the rest of my life I'm going to be bumping into people and to have the adulation and the respect and everything else that, that I receive from them, you know, is, is very, um, it's a good feeling, it's very pleasing. Best time of your career? Has to be. I was very young going to Arsenal, 19, had a good spell at West Ham. Wimbledon was mental, uh, the crazy gang. We, yeah. only, we already spoke about that, that's another half an hour. Yeah. But uh, I went there for big money, 7.5 million in 1999. Uh, that was a record, of course, again. Um, but I enjoyed it, playing for Wales, playing for Celtic. And actually the best period of being playing for Wales, I was 29. Mm. We were getting, we were winning games. We were beating Germany at Cardiff. We were, we were on four games out of four in the 2004 qualifiers. Um, we had a great manager. We had a wonderful sort of bright uh, Premier League, sort of 10 out of the 11 players who played, played in the Premier League. And I was banging in goals for Celtic at 29. Yeah. So it came together, you know, that was probably my prime, 27, 28, 29, playing for Wales, representing number nine for my country, number 10 for Celtic. That was probably the best era um, of my career. What about this current Wales team? See more, more success in the, in the near future? I hope so. I, I, I think um, the players can only benefit from the experience of the Euros. Mm. I hope they stay together as a group. Naturally, you might get one or two retirements. Ryan Giggs will obviously put his own stamp on the whole situation. He's the manager. He has the prerogative and the right to play any system that he wants. Um, so he will look to blood some of the young players that are coming through, rightly so. I think that's always important. If they're good enough and they're playing well for their clubs, they should be looking to push on and get into the national team. You've seen young Woodburn, young Brooks, young Ampadu do that. Um, you know, and then you've got the likes of Sam Vokes, as he playing regular for, for Burnley. Um, we're struggling with players through the middle, if you like. Asher Williams is now 33, had a great time with Wales, 60, 70, 80 caps. What will Ash do? Will Ryan make him the captain? What a boost yeah. that'll be for him. If he takes the captaincy off him and changes it, how does Ashley react to that? Gareth Bale, can Gareth finally get over his injury problems and produce the form that he produced in the qualifiers for us that got us to Euros in 2016? Gareth's one of the best players in the world. Um, when he is in our team, we are a better and a stronger team. So this is an issue for Ryan. I think we should all get behind him as a nation. Ultimately, by winning games, is going to get people behind him. Um, he needs to get the players on board, which I think he will. I think he, he earned that respect as a player. We all very much looked up to Ryan. He's a wonder, wonder player. Mm. So I wish him well, of course. And, um, you know, I hope he starts, you know... Um, up and running with a, you know with some good positive results, and it's going to be interesting, isn't it, to see how he sets up, who he plays, what 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 uh, changes that he makes, and we're all just sitting in anticipation, waiting, aren't we? And what about you, John? 
What's next for you, continuing media work? Anything else on the horizon? I've got lots of um, opportunities that, that lie ahead. Um, I've got to continue with my recovery, of course, which is to stay clean from gambling. And helping others. Helping others, of course, which I do. I go to, I go to meetings twice a week still. I will continue to go to meetings. Um, I've got one one or two ambassadorial roles that I that I take um, I take upon up in Glasgow. Um, I'm currently contracted to BT Sport and the BBC, um, and hopefully you know I can continue with my good work and 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 that I'm I'm coaching at Livingston. I've not given up on a coaching role or possibly a managing managing role in the future. I'm I'm only 42 years of age. I'm not old in terms of coaching or managing. Um, so we'll have to wait and see. I think when you've come through uh, you know, an illness, when you've touched the other side, like I have, um, I think planning, knowing really, uh, planning the future, or, or maybe, um, you know, I'm not quite sure if I want to plan too far ahead because I know more than anybody that what can happen tonight, tomorrow, it can hit you like a like a bolt out of the blue, you know, uh, and that's what happened with my cancer. One minute I think I'm healthy, next min, minute I'm having an emergency brain surgery. So, you know, uh, I think it's important for me not to plan ahead too much, to take everything as it comes and take things in my stride, but I want to continue to be successful. I had a successful career. Uh, I want to continue, um, you know, getting as far in life as I possibly can. John, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. I think your story is, is an amazing one. Probably a story a lot of people have heard little bits and bobs because you're so high profile, but um, you know, to hear that depth and stuff is honestly an absolute pleasure and eye-opener. Hopefully, um, uh, I'll make that trip up to Scotland to get more on the Wimbledon stories and stuff like that for another episode on the podcast. Well, you know Edinburgh very well, of course, having played for Hibs and spent time in the area. So, uh, listen, you're welcome to come up anytime. I'll, I'll welcome you to Edinburgh. When I come to Edinburgh, there's going to be a ski mask on. I'm going to be undercover, mate. <laughs> God, but uh, we're, we're going to have to cut this short because uh, we're both starving. We are starving. Let's yeah. go and grab Let's that table. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks, John. Thanks, Owen. There we have it. Huge, huge thank you to to Big John for his time. He is quite obviously a busy, busy man um, with his punditry, television, radio. He's got his newspaper columns to do up north of the border as well. Um, big, big thank you. He's 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 an inspiration to to anybody with any form of addiction. He is the example that that you can. You can see the light, you can get over these things, uh, whether it's gambling, alcohol, drug abuse. Um, he is the shining example, really, that, that once you figure out that you have a problem, um, that it is possible to get over them and, and, and change your life for the better. So, big, big um, admiration towards him for that. And he's also carrying the good fight in, in ensuring men, women, that they're not naive to, to any changes that happens in their bodies. Um, if if you have a little feel and you do sense and, and, and sense any changes, get it checked out as soon as possible. He is that example. Um, John's so close to losing his life and and not being able to live out you know this successful career and, and career and home life that that he now has. Uh, get things checked out. Go and see the doctor before it is too late. Um, but thank you once again to him for his time thank you all for listening thank you for downloading I apologise again that it's taken so long to get started once again Uh, but hopefully you enjoyed uh, and hopefully you enjoy future episodes Die Ilchenvauer